Job 22:23 and 24 this morning. Eliphaz is going to get the uh, his last word in here. And Derek Thomas in his introduction to this section, I think paints a really good familiar setting for us, which is that his friends are making this argument uh, they're they're expecting to be believed, and he does not believe them, and that's getting frustrated, frustrating. And Thomas says, "There's always a tendency in any debate to overplay one's argument, and when it does, fact blurs into fantasy in the interest of winning the fight." Job's friends have long since forgotten Job the man and are far more concerned now to prove themselves right. I'm sure none of us have ever experienced that, where you get so deep into a fight, it is no longer of any concern to you what this fight was over, or any mistakes you made along the way, or any facts that turned out not to be true. What matters is I will be right. And that is where Eliphaz is when we get to this speech. So in the big picture, we think about the three rounds of speeches where the the friends repeat this rotation. In the first round, everybody spoke. Everybody had something unique to say. All of their arguments came from a slightly different perspective, even within the system, as, as Ash is calling it. And all of them had some mix, for the most part, sorry, some mix, for the most part, of positivity and chastisement. Job, I know you've done a lot of good things. Job, I know you've been a righteous man, but here's the case you're in now. And so they were sort of doing that compliment criticism sandwich thing. In the second round of speeches, everybody was so offended by... Job's rejection of the system by Job saying, no, your worldview is wrong. This idea that there is immediate retribution, good and bad, for what people do is just wrong. And they were so mad that Job dared to disagree with them that all three of them focused on the fate of the wicked. All three of them focused on hell and where people like Job end up when they won't agree with them to them meant God. In this third round, though, uh, I'll quote Dr. Thomas again. He says, Eliphaz appears to contradict his earlier position. Bildad only gets the preface of his speech out and so far doesn't speak at all. It's all falling apart at this point. Like The gloves are off. There's no more organized, coordinated team of comforters. This is not their best work. There's very little, if anything, new theologically in anything that happens in these speeches. It is just repetition, louder, and even moving further away from the plot or the main issue and just getting at this, how dare you disagree with us, you wicked, wicked sinner. Do you ever ask yourself in an argument, what is this about anymore? (laughs) Do Do you ever get... 52% in, 71% in, and think to yourself, why am I doing this? Why do I care this much about the thing this fight is supposedly about? And when we're honest, we realize 
I don't care that much about that thing. I am, I am mortally wounded by the fact that this person disagreed with me. And I will be vindicated. And that is the position of Job's friends. In his book on this section, Christopher Ashe calls Eliphaz's speech an extraordinarily blunt section. Remember, in the first cycle, Eliphaz was the most gracious, the most understanding. As the oldest of the group, there's the expectation that he's the wisest and the most winsome, and and he comes across that way in the first speech. Here, he's lost his mind. He is is beside himself that Job would not uh, agree with him, and remembering how the second cycle of speeches ended, that Job would call people, them, to repentance, would say that they need to be careful lest they... Uh, be unrighteous, and receive God's wrath. So, uh, Renee, will you start 22, 1 through 5? Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. So that's, if you, if you listen or look carefully there, you'll see it's kind of two parts. One through four is, is his theology. It's the system that we've been talking about the whole time. This idea of God's immediate ref, retribution. And then verse five is the accusation of how Job is fitting on the wrong side of that, of how Job is on the the bad end, and that is why he's receiving bad things. What Job is receiving, and now, we talked about this last week when we talked about how do you counter someone's argument that you're being defensive? How do you deal with the accusation that you're just being defensive? What, are you supposed to defend yourself against that? And so Job is doing that. He's defending himself against that. No, I'm penitent. I'm righteous. And now uh, Eliphaz is saying, see, that proves that you're unrighteous. What does? The fact that you won't admit that you're unrighteous. Uh, but isn't that a little bit circular? Is it? No, it's proof. It's proof that you are unrighteous. And this is why Ash said that he contradicts what he said before, because before Eliphaz had said, Job, your sins are probably pretty small and the judgment will be short lived. If you just repent of these sins, you'll go back to the way things were and things will be good. And then here, I mean, you read that and it's, you're the worst sinner in the world. It is hard to imagine that there could be anyone worse than you. And we'll get into the description of that here in just a minute. It's a really nasty speech. And what's implicit for us, the reader, What our ears should pick up on is the accusation of hypocrisy. Eliphaz is saying, you people thought you were this way because of what was going on in your life, because you had it all put together and you had family and you had stuff and you had money and you were great. And you pretended that you deserved that stuff, pretended to be righteous. And actually now we're seeing that you were just a hypocrite and you didn't deserve any of it. Well, who was the last person in Job to accuse Job of being a hypocrite? not a trick question. It's the very beginning of the book. It's chapter one. Satan. That's Satan's argument, isn't it? That the only reason Job likes God is because God gives Job nice stuff. 
And the moment that God takes this stuff away, you'll see he'll turn his back on you. And so Eliphaz now has gone from the words of God in his mouth, even misapplied, to pretty much the words of Satan in his mouth. And this is his friend. This is his comforter. Good job with with comforting. With friends like these, we're all going to be okay. Uh, One commentary on this says that these are the most specific, most harsh, and most unjust words spoken against Job in the whole book. And we've heard a lot of nasty stuff about Job so far, and this is as bad as it gets. So, okay, if that's the accusation that you're this horrible sinner, what sins, what sins has Job committed? Crystal, can you read 6 through 12? the airing of grievances section. And most of what he's done wrong is having to do with abusing his wealth and his power. Gaining that through unjust means and then perpetuating that through unjust means. Um, And that's a pretty good accusation to make against somebody, isn't it? Because if you make that sort of accusation in public, that the person who is well off and whose life looks like it's going well is actually a hypocrite and a sinner and got the, will people want to agree with you or disagree? They'll want to agree with you, right? The person up on top, everybody wants to say got there through unjust means and abuses that power and abuses that wealth and doesn't deserve what they're getting. And so Eliphaz knows that this argument is going to play pretty well with the media. It's going to play pretty well with the crowds. And so he just goes right there that this is the issue. And did Job do any of this stuff? No, he was a righteous man. We're told that at the beginning and at the end. Was Eliphaz even around enough to see Job do this stuff? No, he came back to Job from a distant land. When we're, and we, uh, it's another one of those things that I'm sure that we cannot relate to, which is when you're in the midst of this heated argument and you go on the attack like this, you can get really creative. When you are coming up with the list of the things that the other person has done wrong and sinfully, you can take a pretty broad interpretation of offense and of sin and of anything you don't like suddenly goes in this list. That's when we start talking to people about not just what they said, but their tone. Or not even what they said and not their tone, but what they meant, which is one we use a lot. I know what you meant. Do you? Um, That is too easy of an accusation to make, and we get incredibly creative in it. Uh, And again, all of this is not to prove the point is right. It's to prove that we're right. I'm the one in the right, and that's why I will do this. So then he gets even nastier. Kathy, will you read 13 through 19, chapter 22? snatched away before their time their foundation was washed away 
They said to God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them. Okay, I don't think we'll necessarily remember, but we've read these exact words before in Job. These sentences that are in quotes, we've read before in Job. Eliphaz is quoting Job. But when Job said them, if you'll remember, Job was quoting the wicked. Back when we were talking about how the wicked think and how the wicked act and what the wicked say and why the wicked would inherit curse and hell, Job says the wicked say things like, what does God know? And what can the Almighty do? And now Eliphaz is saying, you, Job, I heard it with my own ears. You said, what does God know? And what can God do? And that's just cruel. That, that is just the dishonest, cruel attack of somebody who wants nothing more than to win. It's one thing to turn someone's words back around on them by asking the question, you said this and you've said this and they're contradictory. Which do you mean? But that's generally, when we're all worked up, not what we do. We use people's words in a way that we know is not what they meant. Right back at them. Well, you said... Right. That's, it's, that's what he's doing here. That's what Eliphaz is having. So he accuses Job, not just of this irreverence, but of really having contempt for God, of thinking that God can and will do nothing about this. And these are the people, the wicked that Job is aligning himself with by taking this argument, and thus Job gets what he deserves. And that's really the hateful part at the end of this, is how self-righteously, self-satisfied Eliphaz feels about what's happening to Job. He came in in the role of comforter, and he offers this sermon that Job rejects about why this is happening, And simply because Job rejected his message about why this is happening, Eliphaz now just goes ballistic on him and then ends with this, I'm glad you're getting what you deserve. It's it's good. This is justice. As he looks at what's happening to Job. Um, It's that fine line we have to walk in differentiating between our enemies and God's enemies. (laughs) What God describes as this outcome for the wicked is the outcome for those who are ultimately his enemies. And we are allowed, in fact, encouraged to pray that that justice will come. That's what the imprecatory psalms are. Out of the depth of our pain and experience of injustice and the confusion of the world, God's people do pray that things would be made right in both directions, that we would be justified by faith before God and that the wicked would be punished. But Eliphaz does what's what's so dangerous and so easy to do, which is to take your enemy, the person disagreeing with you, and to make them de facto God's enemy and therefore the person who would get what they deserve with this, uh, with this punishment, with this uh, uh, wrath against sin. And we really have to have more humility than that. 
We've really got to be able to step back and put a lot of caveats in our prayer. If is a good word. <laughs> if I'm seeing things rightly, Lord. And if I'm not, show me. If this person will not turn and repent. But if they will, give me the heart to forgive them the way you will. I mean, that's one of the biggest prayers we have to pray for our enemies. If, if we come, try to come to terms with this, is we can pray because we know we're supposed to that God would show himself to them and change them. But a really important prayer is, and Lord, if you do, make me able to forgive the way you do. Make me able to see in them new life the way you do. To recategorize them in my thinking the way you do. I don't want to. I'm, I'm telling you honestly. I'm not saying that subjective. I'm telling you honestly. I don't want to. I don't want to categorically move my enemies from the nice little box of wickedness ready for destruction that I have them in over to this, no, they're a redeemed child of God, a sinner in need of a savior who found a savior just like I did. No thanks. And God may have to deal with us on that point because that is a, that is a heart that is not following after God. That is a heart that wants justice in the world the way we want it, just like Eliphaz does, just like Bildad and Zophar. And so he ends all of this. Uh, Doug, will you read 21 through 30? Chapter 22, 21 through 30. Agree with God and, and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of heifer among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold precious silver, for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty, and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him, and He will hear you, and He will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say, it is because of pride, but He saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the the cleanness of your hands. I mean, isn't that, a, isn't that beautiful? That is a beautiful gospel sermon that people who need to repent should repent. And when they do, look what God will do. I, that is a beautiful call to repentance. What's wrong with it? Job doesn't need to repent. <laughs> Job already is repentant. That's how he got in this place before God, where Satan is coming and saying, you got to do something about this Job guy. His faith is really offensive to me. Job is repentant. And the worldview that Eliphaz explains here isn't just spiritual, which is where he gets into trouble and falls back on the system. Because Eliphaz doesn't just say the beautiful gospel truth that through repentance, we can be reconciled to God and God will give us himself, which will be all that we need, more than we ever could have asked for. What Eliphaz says is, if you repent, God will give you your stuff back. If you repent, God will give you your health back. If you turn back to God, your life will look like a magazine cover again. And that's the end of verse 21. If you admit your sin, the good will come to you. Those blessings expounded in 25 through 30 sound wonderful. But what's the motivation 
Well, it's the same as somebody else we heard earlier in this book who said, the only reason that God is lovable is because he gives people good things. And once again, we have in the mouth of Eliphaz, basically the voice of Satan. That is theologically accurate to a point. And then you ask just the one question, which in this case is, well, why? Why would I repent and turn back to God? What's the motivation? And it's so you could get good stuff. And that is exactly as Satan said. Eliphaz just cannot get past the system, this idea that if you do good, you will get good. If a man, and, and in reverse, that you can look at a man and if he's healthy and wealthy and seems to have a good life, he's righteous. And if he's sick and poor and suffering, he's a sinner. That's, that's it. That's the system. And Eliphaz cannot see anything outside of that. So again, we're left with this mixed, this, uh, mixed taste in our mouth from listening to Eliphaz talk, which is the speech has truth. God does watch the earth. The, the wicked are wrong when they say God does not see and God can't do anything about it. Job didn't say that. Job says the wicked say that. And Job's exactly right that the wicked say that. And the wicked are wrong. God does see. But, uh, and, and God sees obedience and sin. And God calls to repentance. And God does, as Ash puts it, bless the repentant with right relationship with him. And that's a lot about what the sermon will be this morning is. When you look at a life, the life that you want, the ideal life, is right relationship with God enough to make life ideal? Is that safe enough? And is it rich enough? Or do you look at life in right relationship with God and say, yeah, but I want more. Do you think that there's more? And Eliphaz thinks that there's more. And so everything he's saying is, Job, you cannot be in right relationship with God and have all this other stuff in your life be so bad. But that's not true. Job is penitent. Job's relationship with God is fine. The disconnect, the incongruity between that reality and Job's circumstances, this actual hellish suffering, are what break the system. It's why Job is arguing against his friends so hard. The system cannot be right. This, this immediate retribution, easy, you look at one, you can call it like you see it, it's balls and strikes. Job says, my life and the incongruity of that mean the system cannot be right. I know I'm right with God, and yet I'm getting really, really bad things. And in a minute when we get into chapter 24, he'll talk about the other side of that that he sees as well, which is the, the wicked prospering. And he says, I, I see both. And there is no way that what you're saying about the world fits with the reality that I've experienced. Uh, questions about that speech, and then we'll get into the two chapters of Job's reply. He's basically going to ignore Eliphaz at this point, which is pretty reasonable. And he's just going to pick up where he left off back in chapter 21 and just sort of resume that speech. <laughs> Any questions about what Eliphaz has to say? All right. Daphne, can you read 23, 1 through 10? And Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. 
Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So the what's happening here? Well, there's hope and trust, but it's the trustful feeling of injustice, the experience of injustice. It's, it's both. It's Job wrestling with that incongruity. And so there's this lament of what seems and feels like injustice on God's part. He is penitent, his conscience is clear, and yet it seems like God has abandoned him. And that is a horrific way to feel. Ash describes it. The sense of being forgotten tends to make us feel humiliated. It's the feeling of being small and totally insignificant. And so far in Job, when Job feels something other than that, he's described it as feeling worse that God has not forgotten him. God is drawing up his military plans against him to bring more destruction and pain into his life. And so he just bounces back and forth with what he knows theologically by faith is not true. God has not abandoned me. God has not forgotten me. I am not the wicked sinner receiving what I deserve that my friends say that I am. I know what is true. And yet what I'm experiencing is so disconnected from that. It seems so at odds with that. And that's what chapter 24, we don't have time to read it this morning, but chapter 24 is all about the other side of that, the wicked prospering side. He, he starts off chapter 24 with a reference to the time of the judges and this idea that in, in the time of the earthly judges, uh, human judges go around and provide pretty quick feedback on what's right and wrong. People at least get pretty quick um, instruction as to this was good, this was bad, this was just, this was unjust, this was legal, this is illegal. That's the way human judges work in a reasonable system. That's not how God works. And so Job sort of starts with, that's not how God seems to operate. God allows injustice in both directions to go on for a long time. Some, remember back one of the other speeches, one of the friends said, no, 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 whenever that happens, it's really, really short, and God makes it right quickly. And Job says, no, look around. Look how long these wicked people can prosper. Look how many generations of blessing the evil people can have by breaking all of God's rules and living for themselves. And look how long and how significantly the righteous can suffer. And he sets that up at the beginning of chapter 24 that God allows this for, to go on for a long time. And then in 12 through 17, he just describes the results. Uh, tw- chapter 24, if you look from verse 2, sorry, I said 12. If you look from verse 2 to verse 17, you're just going to see a list of things that stink. You're just going to see a list of crummy stuff that happens in the world whereby the wicked prosper. Things they can get away with. Uh, because God is not intervening immediately the way that his friends say that they are. And then at the end of chapter 23, Job describes that that contrast 
is why he feels the way he feels. How things should be versus how things are. And this is a really, really important distinction. <laughs> because what, what we think is that the painful distinction in life is between how I would do things and how God does them. And sometimes we can get really worked up, we can get really hurt, we can expend a lot of emotional energy, we can get angry at God, we can get frustrated, and we can say that we're in the position of Job, but what we're actually dealing with is something very different. God just didn't do the world the way we wanted the world done. That's not Job's complaint. If you had to stand before your Redeemer on the last day, and you were there to be acquitted the way Job talks about, and the case that you bring before the Redeemer is the way you would have done things, you will not be vindicated. That discussion is not going to end well. And you are not right I am not right when I feel all the time that my way is better and God is wrong. Job is not judging the situation or judging God's actions by the world Job would prefer. Don't do that. He's judging it by what God said would be. He's judging God against God's own words. And as we get later into the book and you see God have to do a little redirection and correcting of Job's thinking, what you're going to hear from Job is him moving his argument from here where it's been so far in the book of God, I know these things to be true about you because you said them. And that's the disconnect that is breaking my brain. I, I, I can't get how these things can both be true. That you are the God that I know you are and that this is the world that I'm experiencing. That's a good argument. That's the argument of the Psalms of Lament. That's the argument of the whole book of Lamentations. That's a really good argument. How long, O oh Lord? I know what is true. What I see doesn't match it. When will you bring those together? That is a great biblical argument. That is what Job is teaching us to do. The dangerous, selfish, wrong argument is a mere tweak from that, which is how long, O oh Lord, will I not get what I want? How long, O oh Lord, will you not do what I know is best? And that is judging God against our standards. And that's why even when we get to the rebuke of Job later in the book, we're not going to get to the rebuke that is Job. And this is the way sometimes I think people, I've heard Job taught this way. Let me just say that. That when you get to the end of Job and God's correcting Job, people accuse Job of, of like God is saying, you're just, you're just petty and selfish and you want what you want and I'm bigger than you and you should listen to me. And they go to, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And their takeaway from that is that God is saying, your wants bad compared to my wants. <laughs> and what God is saying in those arguments is, no, no, no. <laughs> You can't see the part in the middle. 
You don't see how all of this happens. You can't even comprehend how I use this for that, how both those things are true, what I've said will be, and your description of what you're experiencing. They're both very real. And you think they are irreconcilable. They cannot be matched. And in your brain, they can't. Because you know what your brain doesn't know? What it was like to lay the foundations of the earth. What it was like to make the monsters of the deep. What it was like to speak and put all the, the pregnant cattle into labor. Like, you just don't know. And it's not a shut up, you're insignificant argument. It's a Job, you are right about what will be. You're right about what I said. You're also right about your experience. Everything in the middle, too deep for you. That path that we want God to give us, okay, God. I'm willing to tolerate because I'm a good Christian and you're welcome, God. I'm willing to tolerate that you would allow this horrible thing to happen in the world. Bad thing. I'll allow for that because you're God and I'm not. But what you owe me is the map, the detailed map of how we get from that bad thing to good purposes. And not just, I, I wish I'd written, I can, because I have the ability to do this. Best purposes. There was no better way to do it. Not just all the options were bad and he picked the best of the bad options. No, 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 no. This world with all of Job and our Job was the best way to do it. Not the best available way, the best way. And that's a hard thing to hear, but I think the value of saying it and acknowledging that is if we will factually believe that then it should be a lot easier for us to say, yeah, I have no ability to comprehend what comes in between. I, I, I can't. Because we try to do the, uh, we, we like to take the sort of bad thing, which I don't mean to minimize, but the, the, the bab. I don't mean to minimize, but there are things in our life that we think are really bad, and then we look back later and we're like, hmm. I'll take that again instead of what I have now. We take the sort of bad thing and we are able to draw a line from it to some good purposes. God's gracious to give us that, that we can look back and say, oh, that was terrible, but only because of that did these eight things happen that glorified God and that were good for me and that drew me closer to Christ and blah, blah, blah. And, and we take this, which God is gracious to give us, and we say, we can always do that. Always. I don't know what they are yet, but God will show them to me. I'll find them. I'll figure them out so that I can make my nice little orderly map about why God did this to bring about these other good things. And then the super bad thing plus, 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 plus comes into life. You're never going to get that. Never going to get that map. You know how I know? I read Job. Because that's what Job is going to say. 
He wants to be vindicated before God, but he's more and more and more going to move into the, I want the map. And God is going to say, it would break your brain. You'd explode from the inside out. I mean, God says in scripture sometimes he could give us exactly the answer that we are looking for and we wouldn't understand a single word. (laughs) We would say, yeah, but when are you going to answer it? (laughs) We don't have the capacity. He is so far. He's not just smarter than us. He's omniscient. He's not just better than us. He's holy, actually holy. He's omnipotent. He's go through all of his attributes. Some of them we reflect in a, in a creaturely way. But when you get into the amount that he has or the way that he displays that attribute, you think, whoa, that is, there is none like you. And then some of his attributes we can't even have. They're incommunicable is the theological word. They cannot be transmitted from him to you. You don't even have the capacity to, to have a generic knockoff version of some of the things that God has within himself. And that's what he's going to say to Job later on, is I'm not hiding things from you to play a game. I'm not hiding things from you to be cruel to you. There are things that are by their very nature hidden from you because you are a creature and I am the creator. And on the point of those things, you either trust God or you don't. And that's what it's going to come down to. And we think, well, if God could just give me a a little, like some points on the map here, it would make it a whole lot easier to trust him. And God says, no, I give you a thousand examples of this. I give you a thousand examples throughout your life of the things that were bad that I used for good purposes. And I showed you why, and I showed you the map, and I showed you the outcome. That is why you got to trust here. It's not why, but it is one tool in through which we trust God there. And we say, "Mm, I'm going to need you to map this one out for me. And that's when Job 38 comes into effect. He's like, "Mm, you have no idea what you're asking for. Explode your brain. Andrew? So I think I remember we talked about, we had a discussion on in the new heavens and the new earth in the next life. I I think you said you're like 95% (laughs) that we still won't know. Sounds like me. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm just trying to remember what that discussion was. In heaven, will we have the map or will we not? Scripture doesn't say. Yeah, that's right. So all I can say is there are things we do not know and understand today that will be clear to us, that we will know and understand when we have uncursed, unfallen minds. We will see things clearly that today we see wrongly. So I know that that is true. I'm also 95% sure, based on scripture, that there are things God knows that we will never know because they are, by their nature, incommunicable. We will always be creatures. In the new heavens and the new earth, yes, we will be glorified, and it will be glorious, but we will still be creatures. And that gulf will cause us to marvel then the way we ought to marvel now. Something I read this week actually ties up. It's not making the same point. This analogy is flawed, blah, blah, blah. 
but it was talking about the difference between like thinking about how God explaining things to us in a way of if we had to explain something to an ant. Like the gulf, the gulf yeah. there is so great. Like when you try to figure out how you would express something, like there is even more so. Like his otherness is even more so than us with an ant. So like putting it in, yeah, I never really. That's the that. miracle of God's revelation. If we think of it like, you know, a, a wise, learned, eighty-year-old PhD explaining something to a, a toddler, the ant is better. <laughs> It says, we do not have the physiological capacity to receive, understand, and interpret the answer to this question. But he could make it where we like he, he could. could. He could. And that's why I have to say, I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know. I, I know this. 100%. Not 95. There is nothing you will long for that will not be satisfied. And you, it's hard for us to imagine ever being okay with not knowing this, but either you will know it or that longing will be satisfied. Yeah. And I think the point that the thing you want to know so bad, the thing you want to understand so bad and that you want the reason for and that you want the understanding for, when you get to heaven, if that has already been resolved, you won't need to know the reason. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're happy with the outcome, you're like, oh, I get this. I don't have to understand it now. Like, it will be so resolved. I think it's very similar to the way uh, Jake said when his dad died and someone was talking to him about, you know, how you process a loved one that you're just not sure if they're in glory or not. And you you put your hope in the goodness of God and you recognize that you cannot know for sure right now and when you do know for sure, it will be okay. Whatever the answer is, then it will be okay. And now we're like, nope, there's one answer that would be okay and there's one answer that is not okay. There's grace for that. <laughs> but it is theologically true that when you know for certain, it will be okay. And so it will be with this. You'll either be okay because you know and you see, wow, what God was doing, or you'll be satisfied apart from that knowing. You won't crave it. You won't long for it. Three closing thoughts. Oh. That's okay. No, go ahead. Well, this is going back to when you were talking about. Don't quote my own words back to me. <laughs> Maybe it is right. Like when God will make mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much grace for that. I would not let the devil um, put you on guard about your sincerity. God knows what we want. He knows the one we want. (laughs) The one that we're not allowed to stand in accusation of him again, right? You have to do this or you're a bad God. He knows that want. And he knows why we want it. And in these cases that we're thinking about, it's not it's not out of selfishness. It's, it's out of a, a deep sense of what would be right. And 
that's okay. We pray that there is grace for the times when we are wrong. And there are many times when we're wrong about what would be right. And there's grace for it. And when we see I, this, this life in the new heavens and the new earth is going to be this daily, minute by minute of ex- experience of seeing something that is different than we expected it to be, that is different than we would have done it. And our minds immediately being overwhelmed with that's exactly as it ought to be. And that is one of the experiences I'm really looking forward to in heaven. Because here, I have just the opposite. I see so many things and I think, that ain't right. <laughs> Along the same category of how prayer fits into that, though, like how, how do you have the connection between understanding or trying to understand the chasm between ants and God and then at the same time approach him boldly and yeah. approach with confidence before the throne of grace Abraham, you know, being told Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed, and then you go time out, you know, what if there's, what if there's, you know, yeah. 10, and how does that fit into this not understanding with, with a sense of humility? Oh, it's, it's a great question, and it leads right into Derek Thomas's concluding thoughts on this section. It's like you set it up for me. <laughs> he says, what Job is anxious to receive are the blessings that God has promised for the righteous, and the judgment God has promised for the wicked. He wants God to be faithful to his own word. So there are three things he says we need to take away from this, and I I do believe they tie into your question. He says, first, we need to see the value of the word of God in the process. And so I would say we've, we've got to get better, and this is a big part of the sermon. We have got to get better at analyzing life what we see, how we interpret it, and to Doug's question, what we ask for through Scripture, through what God has said, not through how we feel, not through what the world says, not through the type of security or riches that the world says is approachable. We've We've got to have the Word of God as the filter through which. So we can have that dialogue with God. Now, Admittedly, Abraham's in a really unique position because he's literally having a dialogue with God. God has given us his finished word in scripture. And and it does have the answers to all of our questions if we will satisfy ourselves with God. It's, it's, um, we look at scripture and we say, scripture doesn't have the answer to this question. How do we reconcile that with God saying, yes, it does? And you look, but you're like, and what it must be is that we're not being satisfied with the answer that God gives. We're looking for our answer and God has given us his. And we say, yeah, but God's answer, I mean, it's like very uh, lofty and theological. I'm looking for practical. Like, what do I do on Tuesday? And like, that is the answer. And so that, that word of God being the filter through which we understand all of these things. So second, Thomas says, we have to know that word in advance because if we wait until trouble comes, we waited too late. You you will go find the verses that lead you the direction you want to go at that point, right? When when my children are, are really, really disobedient and horrible and I go to scripture to see how am I going to punish them and I find that I'm allowed, according to Leviticus, to uh, put to death, to stone the child who speaks back to his parent. Right? I can find that verse if I want to. We've got to know it in advance 
that way we can interpret the circumstances. And if our, if our goal is to be good counselors for other believers, to help them filter the circumstances, filter their thoughts and their feelings through the word of God and not through some idea we have about how things ought to be. And then third, Thomas says, we have to see the situation as not entirely hopeless. And again, calling us back to prayer, God, what it looks like you're doing, what it feels like you've done. I feel abandoned. Everything suggests hopelessness. And yet scripture tells me that is not true at all. So I lift my heart up in prayer. A lot of counselors recommend Lamentations chapter 3 as something to read in those times where you feel utterly abandoned because the crux of that is the poet's refusal, this is me quoting Derek Thomas, the poet's refusal to relinquish hope in God. And that is exactly what you're seeing in Job in these speeches. It is not sugar-coated. It is not birthday cakes and lemonade. It is a lot of junk. It is really, really bad thing, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Like, it is bad, bad, bad. And yet you just get these little, however deep Job sinks, he knows that God will do what is right. And that's why you take it to God in prayer. And yeah, in your prayer, you got to separate out. I know God will do what I want him to do. I can hope God will do what I want him to do. I can pray that God will do the thing that I want him to do. But what I know, the reason that things are not hopeless is because he'll do what is right, which may or may not be the thing that I want him to do. But I know he will do what's right, and that's Job's strength.